more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Excellent. All right, got you reeled in. Hey, if you're just tuning in online, it's great that you've joined us. Again, my name is Michael, one of the pastors on staff here. And if you're here today for the first time, you're just visiting, or you're here today because uh, you've got family of a child that was dedicated or baptized, uh, let me get you caught up. We are in the midst of a series that we have entitled uh, Says Who? And in this series, we're arguing that there really is such a thing as right and wrong in the world, that there's um, a, a right way to approach life, spirituality, a relationship with God. But um, it, it begs the question, says who? You know, like, if you ever, older siblings, hands, show of hands, ever have a younger sibling tell you what to do? And you're like, what do you say to them? Says who, right? So this, this is what we're saying with this series. Like if somebody's like, well, this is how life should work, or spirituality works, or here's how you engage God in relationship, a fair question to say is, well, says who? And in this series, we're saying God's the one who says who. In fact, we're saying that God has taken the time to reveal this truth to us in the Bible. But all of that then begs the question of, well, is there a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible? Are there ways in which I can read the Bible that will actually help me to understand better what God is saying. And in this series, we're saying absolutely yes. And so what we're doing is each week, we're taking a different type of literature from the Bible, and we're exploring together different principles and best practices that are meant to best help us understand what God's trying to communicate to us in that book. Now, as we continue today, we're going to look at a type of uh, literature known as historical narrative. And if you've been riding this train with us, you're, you're, you know, you're hopefully, James is hoping you're thinking, hey, a few weeks ago, James talked about Old Testament narrative, and he did. But the Bible contains a number of different historical narratives. You have the Old Testament narrative, you have the Gospels, you have the Book of Acts. And each of them are nuanced just a little bit differently that it's worth taking each of them separately. So today we're going to spend some time looking at the Book of Acts. But before we do, we want to take a minute and pray invite God to be part of this. So let's pray together and then we'll jump in. Father, again, thank you so much just for time to celebrate with these kids, with these families. Father, again, we pray that you would work over the long haul in the lives of those children, that you would draw them to yourself. Fathers, we take time today to try and explore your truth, I pray you'd make our hearts and our minds receptive to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So if you're, you're, if you're to open up a Bible in the New Testament, you'd have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which serve as biographies of the life of Jesus, and then you have the book of Acts. And the book of Acts kind of picks up where those other ones left off, you know? Now, the book of Acts, it's, it's fun, it is exciting, it is action-packed, um, but sometimes... The book of Acts is kind of weird. Sometimes you'll read things in the book of Acts, and they're just downright disturbing. And I think a lot of the confusion with the book of Acts gets tied into a question that the people have been asking about the book of Acts for a long time. And the question is simply this, all right? Was the book of Acts written to serve as a model or history? See, when we read the book of Acts, is this, is this meant to be, you know, like, should we have the lens of this is a model, like, this is what the church did then, therefore, this is what the church should do now. Or, is the book of Acts meant to be read through the lens of, this is a history of the key acts of the early church. And there's, there's probably some truth 
to both, but you can get into trouble with either or. For example, the folks who are in the model crowd, you've probably heard folks be like, hey, we need to get back to the Acts 2 church. You know, we need to, this is the way they did it then, this is the way we need to do it now. And sometimes I would agree with that, but here's the thing about model churches. Oftentimes, they're not very consistent in how they do that. They, they don't apply the model method across the board. Like, you, you probably won't find very many model churches that choose their elders the way the church chose their elders in Acts chapter 1. You go back to Acts chapter 1, there's an open elder position there in that very first church, the first church of Jerusalem, if you would. And to fill that position, they choose two men that they think are qualified to be an elder. They then cast lots to determine which of those two men will be the next elder of that church. So if we were a model church here at Faith, that means in June when we have an open elder position, we'd go, okay, who are two men who we think are qualified for this role? And then... The congregation gets no input in this decision. The current elders have no say-so in this decision. Instead, we roll the dice. That's literally what it is to cast lots. And so if it's an odd number, Bob, you're the next elder. And if it's an even number, then merciful, you're the next elder. And that's how we're going to pick one. Who wants to be a model church? You're like, that's weird. Yes, it is. Because if you see it just through the lens of model, it gets really strange. So, not that there can't be any modeling going on, but I would contend that the, the history lens is probably the more helpful of the two. In fact, we've been basing this series off of a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And in it, they have a statement about th this history idea. Um, we read, the book of Acts is a history chronicling the key acts of the early church. In the book of Acts, we watch as Christianity is born in Jerusalem and is seemingly available only to ethnic Jews. But then under the direction of the Holy Spirit, it spreads to the farthest known world and becomes available to anyone regardless of ethnicity, gender, or class. So they're going, hey, when Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, when he wrote it, he didn't give you an exhaustive history of everything that happened in the first church. No, he intentionally picked out specific things that took place. He, he intentionally chronicled key acts, ones that captured how the church that, when, when it originally started, it's like, it's just a Jewish thing. You ain't Jewish, you ain't in. And it's just a Jerusalem thing. You live somewhere else, too bad. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just explodes. And the church moves from this Jerusalem Jewish thing to just all over the Roman world, and now it's available to anybody doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, doesn't matter if you're slave or free, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, Jesus is available to you now. So Luke's chronicling this idea. Now, here's the thing. You read through the book of Acts, and there are some things that are just the history of, hey, here's how we got from here to there. And yet you read through the book of Acts, and other times there are things where you're like, well, that's how they did it then, and, and I think maybe we should still do it that way now. And so the question becomes, like, how do I know, am I, am I just dealing with history, or this is actually something that's meant to model what we should do? Well, that's where good principles for reading historical narrative can be really helpful to us. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a scene from the first church, from the book of Acts. 
And it's, it's weird, it's disturbing at times, buckle in, get ready for that. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of take some of those principles and try and just learn, okay, is this history, is this for us to model, and how do we tell the difference between the two? So here we go, picking up in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all so that <clears throat> there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't, it, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And right, shocking stuff, right? And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. Now, if this is a model, <laughs> what happened then happens now. Here's what that means. Like, I'm going backpacking, I'm going to leave, I'm going to shake hands, kiss babies, get my stuff, go backpacking. Taking a couple kids with us. Vehicle I have is a little small. So who's got a large SUV? Show of hands. Don't lie, you just read. <laughs> all right? So we all we hold all things in common, so just leave your keys with me on the way out. Who's got more than one vehicle? Show of hands. Keep them up. Who's got property up north? Get the, no, keep, car people, keep your hands up. Property up north. House by the lake somewhere, vacation home, anybody? Who's got a 401k you've been saving, retirement, right? Okay. That's the way it happened then. It's the way it needs to happen now. So between now and next Sunday, you need to start liquidating some assets, bring the proceeds in here to church, lay them at the leadership team's feet, and say to them, you distribute that to the poor as you all see fit. And if you didn't raise your hand and you lied in church, right, or you're thinking about lying about your property or anything else for that matter, God's going to get you because that's the way it happened then, so that's the way it's going to happen now. You're like, that's insane, right? But if, if it's just a lens, if it's only the model lens, things get really weird really fast. 
So let, let's take some time and, and think through some principles for working through narrative. All right? Because here's the deal. Narrative isn't necessarily normative. Narrative, just because it happened that way, doesn't mean it's supposed to happen that way. You can have some things in the narrative that do serve as a norm, but you have other things that are just describing what kind of craziness took place. And some of the principles for understanding historical narratives can help us figure out, is this narrative or is it normative? So here, here's our first two, context and history. Context and history. Going, okay, I just read this scene out of the, out of the early church's life. Like, what has happened leading up to this scene that would help me to better understand what I just read about? And what maybe happens after this scene that would help me make more sense out of what I just read about? Or history. How does this scene in the history of the life of the church fit into the overall history of the church? Or just what's taking place, what we can learn from history altogether? So, so let's, let's think about some of these things with Ananias and Sapphira. You read the, this is Acts chapter 4. You read the first three chapters of the book of Acts and you discover like the church is brand new. It's this infant church. And if you saw some of those little, little, I mean some of these kids are a little bigger and they're a little tougher, but like little, 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 little peanut. <laughs> it's just so fragile. Just so fragile. This is true of communities and organizations. When they are new, they are fragile. Their culture is just being formed. And when the culture of any organization, any community is being formed, it's an incredibly important time because it's going to shape the culture and the identity and the mission of that organization to come. And if, if, if the history of organizations teaches us anything, it teaches us that a culture is always easier to form than it is to change. Once a culture has been established firmly, it is so difficult to change that. And if a culture is established around the wrong things, not only is it difficult to change, but if the organization is young and when that culture becomes unhealthy, that organization is going to meet a premature death. So in the book of Acts, you have the, the culture of this church, this infant church is being formed. Now, initially, you read those first three chapters, and we even see some of it in chapter four. It's being formed around things like care and generosity and authenticity and self-sacrifice, right? We saw that, like in this church, you have people who are incredibly well-resourced, and then you have people who are living right on the edge of poverty. In the same church, like we're used to one or the other, your poor church, your rich church. No, first church in Jerusalem, there's both, and and. You have people among the well-resourced group who voluntarily, nobody's making them do this, voluntarily they sell off some of their resources, they take those proceeds to the leadership of the church and they say, hey, use this to help people who have genuine need who are struggling to eat and live indoors. Now, as this is happening, we got Ananias and Sapphira and they're among the well-resourced group and they got a piece of property I don't know where their property is. Let's just say they've got lakefront on the Dead Sea, right? And so they sell it. And I don't know how much they got for it. Let's say they got 250000 right? So what, what Ananias does is he takes 100 grand and he puts it in a bank to save it for a rainy day, 
right? And then his wife knows, because this, this isn't a model principle, although it maybe should be, all right? Gentlemen, if you sell something and you get a lot of money, tell your wife about the, keep your wife informed about the money, all right? Amen, ladies? Yeah, all right, there you go, all right, so you don't even have to pay anything extra for that, guys, all right? So, so he let, his wife knows what's going on, 100 grand in a bank, we're saving this for a rainy day. He cuts a $150,000 cashier's check to bring to church to help people in need. Now, under normal circumstances, this is a good thing. In fact, we'll just lay down a general operating principle for Faith Covenant Church. If you show up with a $150,000 check to further the mission of the church to help those in need, I am going to celebrate that with you. And if you don't believe me, test me. I will show it to you. Just any kind of fat check. I will celebrate that with you, right? But he doesn't just roll in there with a fat check to help the church or those in need. No. He comes in in a very public way for everyone to see. In a way designed to lead people to believe he is bringing in the full amount of that sale and brings in his gift. And Peter is like, Ananias, you're full of the devil. Like, what? it was your money, it was your, your, your property, you didn't have to sell it. It's your money, you could do whatever you wanted with it. Why are you coming in here pretending to be someone in something you are not? And Ananias, just, he's gone. Now, his wife comes in, she doesn't know what happened to him, but she knows what's going on with the money. And so Peter says to her, you know, it makes you wonder, how did Peter know this stuff, right? But somehow he knows. So Peter says to her, listen, he's like, hey, how much did you give for that property? 150 grand? Somebody got a really good deal. I thought it was worth more than 150,000. She's like, yep, we got 150 grand. He, he brought you the check, right? He's like, why are you lying? Can you hear the pitter-patter of feet out in the lobby? Those are the guys who just got done taking care of your husband. They're going to take care of you next. Now, again, I would contend this, this narrative is here to teach us more than just, you know, like church-sponsored, you know, liquidation of assets, and you lie to a pastor, you die, guaranteed, all right? No, you, you start to dig into some of the history and some of the culture. There's, there's more here for us than that. A whole lot more. See, you have this, again, you have this church where the culture is being formed. And as it's being formed, again, it's being formed around factors like these. Care, generosity, self-sacrifice, authenticity. You want your church to be marked by these kind of characteristics. You want your church to be a community that's known for this. You get a church that's known for this, you're going to do fine. But Ananias and Sapphira, they're making decisions. And I don't even think they, they understood how far-reaching, what kind of impact those decisions could have. But they're making them anyway. And they're making decisions. Again, the, the, it's an infant church. The culture is not formed yet. And the decisions they are making have the potential to change what this culture is going to center around from things like this instead to things like these. Indifference greed, selfishness, 
people who are disingenuous. Now, I'm telling you right now, a church that's known for this, that's not going to work. You do not want your church to be known. You don't want to be, oh, yeah, they're the greedy church. (laughs) They're the indifferent Christians. They're the selfish people down there. No. And if, and if, the, if that infant church, if its culture solidifies around these kind of markers, that church is dead. That's right. You see, this is part of why the response on God's part is so drastic. God understands. I, again, Ananias and Fire may not understand. But their behavior, their decisions have the potential to derail the culture of the church from things like this to things like that. And if the culture of that church solidifies around these kind of markers, that the very first church is going to die. And it will rob generations to come, people for generations to come, of the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus, to grow to become like him, to be empowered to serve in ministry and, and lead others to him themselves. So God's like, listen, you're going to try and derail the mission of my church. You're going to try and destroy this community. I'm not going to stand by and do nothing as you treat my bride this way. And the whole community, they get it. That's why twice in the passage you see people like, they're, they're, they're afraid. This freaks them out. So, you still have to go, okay, there's all this stuff going on here and I'm digging underneath you know, with the history and the context. What is for the church, what, what can we learn for the church today from the church then? What can we learn for the church now from the church then? And really importantly, what are the principles we can use to help answer that question and do so consistently and logically? Beyond just, you know, like, well, I like this thing you know, from Acts, so I'm going to say that's a model kind of thing, and I don't like this thing from Acts, so I'm, j- I'm just going to ignore that one. You know? No, no, no. How do we do this logically and consistently? Well, let's, let's start with some of the lessons for today. I think here in this passage, there's a call and a caution. A call to still care for those in need among us, and a caution against behavior that puts the church at risk. I would contend that today as the family of faith, just like they did there in the book of Acts, we are still called to care for those in need around us. That if, that, that if I see a fellow brother or sister in Christ who has a genuine need, I should do something. And there are two reasons why I would say that this is a call for us today as a church. The first one is this. This idea to call, it's repeated it's a reoccurring theme. This call to care is a reoccurring theme in the, in the book of Acts. Again and again and again, you see this call where those who have are going to care for those who don't. And, now, here's the interesting thing. How they care changes. The, the mission remains the same, but the method is fluid. And so they, there's this call to care. So when you're reading through narrative and you see a theme repeating itself, that's a clue that there could be something there to be modeled. The, the second reason I would say this is because this idea gets reiterated in prescriptive literature. See, narrative describes what is taking place. But then you have something like the epistles. You get done with the book of Acts, and then you have all these letters to the early churches 
prescribing to them how to be the church with one another. And one of the things they talk about regularly is, hey, as the church, look out for each other. Give you an example from the book of James. James will say, suppose a brother or sister is without clothing and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? By implication, James is saying, do something. So I would say, hey, there's a call to us as the church right there from the book of Acts, modeling for us this idea of, hey, if we see people in need in our midst, we're going to do something because that theme's repeated in the book of Acts and then it's reiterated in the epistles. I would also, though, say there's a caution there from this story of Ananias and Sapphira, a caution against behavior that's going to put the mission or viability of the church at risk. And again, I'd say this for two reasons. One, you see that caution take place. It's repeated again in the book of Acts. And two, it comes up in the epistles. Give you an example from Paul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now, growing up, anybody ever had this verse quoted at them for why you shouldn't smoke cigarettes? Anybody? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. All right. Now, here's the deal. I'm not advocating smoking, all right? This passage isn't talking about that. If you understand the context and the language of this passage, you can't legitimately apply it to don't smoke. Here's what I'm talking about. Again, what's happening up until we get to this point? Well, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, first three chapters of the book of Corinthians. Paul is writing to that church, and he's writing to them really frustrated about all the bickering and arguing and fighting that's happening between them about egotistically driven, self-serving, petty kind of issues. It's gotten to the point where they're now choosing sides. They're no longer living into the mission that Jesus gave them, and this infant church there in Corinth is in, in danger of dying. And so Paul says to them, The you here is plural in the original language. So if you're from the south, all right, Paul says, don't all y'all know, all right, or or you-ins. I was taught somebody from the south said to me, if you really want to be southern, you say you-ins, all right, but don't all you all know that you yourselves as this community of faith, you're God's temple. God's spirit dwells in this community of people. If somebody's going to do something that puts the mission of this community at risk to serve their self-serving desires, somebody's going to do something that could actually put the risk of the community, you know, like put the community at risk, destroy the church itself, because they want church to work this way for themselves. Paul, he gets brutal. He's very serious. He's like, listen, you destroy God's church, God's going to destroy you. Paul's like, don't, don't think you can roll in and get all selfish and self-serving and try and make sure this thing is about what you want it to be for you and somehow God's going to bless that. He's not. It's almost like I can hear Paul going, hey, let me tell you this story about Ananias and Sapphira. 
that I would contend part of what their story teaches us is it gives us a caution. Now, I'd say that because, it gets, again, it's repeated in Acts. This idea of, hey, God's looking out for his church. And then it's reiterated in the epistles. So, book of Acts. It's exciting. It's full of action. It's fascinating. But if I view it just from the lens of this is a model, it gets really weird and confusing. And it's hard. It's really difficult to be consistent if I'm saying this is only a model. But if I see this as a select history, how the church goes from here to here, from these folks to those folks, all of a sudden those nuances make more sense. There are things that are modeled for me there. But history and culture and context help me figure that out. As it's repeated in the book of Acts, as it's reiterated in the epistles. Would you pray with me, church? Father, thank you so much for your church. Father, thank you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you took something that was local and in an explosive way, you sent it to all the known world. Father, thank you that you took something that initially seemed selective and you made life and healing and forgiveness and more available to anyone. Father, help us. Help us to continue to be your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.